I am Alon Ben-Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Anthony Oberchall, Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has written on social movements, collective action, ethnic conflicts, genocide, and mass violence, counterinsurgency, peacekeeping and civil strife, and other related topics. You can find more information about Tony on the page for this episode. My background is uh, in, in sociology. I studied at uh, Harvard and Columbia a long time ago. And uh, I became interested in uh, social movements, collective behavior, crowd behavior. And the uh, U.S. was, of course, in the 1960s and 70s, full of that. Yes. Uh, and ranged everything from the civil rights to the feminist and environmental movement, black power and all of that. So uh, I followed these um, uh, these movements, I wrote about them, and a bunch of us uh, developed a, uh, a new way of looking at social movement and collective action. And the younger people also in Europe started adopting, it was basically a non-Marxist and very empirically oriented view mm -hmm. of, of these events. And... Uh, the younger generation that we were in touch with uh, did a pretty good job, and I myself became interested in other things, how these ideas would apply to the field of international relations. Now, um, specifically, 1989 was the year when the uh, communist regimes all over Europe crumbled, yeah, and uh, Western-type institutions developed. Uh, I myself was born in Hungary, and uh, my family left um, shortly after communism. We had, to, we had to leave because we were capitalists, and I was basically then raised in the United States. And what intrigued me as a question is why in Hungary, Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time, Poland, these, even in the Soviet Union, these transitions were going on at a fairly peaceful, reasonable rate, but not in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia fell, fell apart yes, yeah. in a total mess of civil wars and so on. So... Uh, I had been dealing with, from a former uh, interest of mine in the early 60s, I spent three years in Africa and I looked and studied various ethnic and tribal uh, issues and conflicts and so on. And I saw something developing in, in uh, Yugoslavia, which <laughs> looked like not what was typical of Europe, but was typical of what I had experienced in East and Central Africa. So I said, well, maybe I can look at this and, 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 and research it and come up with something. And together with many others, we uh, basically 
um, analyze these civil wars, the roots of them, these conflicts, and uh, uh, you know try to figure out what would be a reasonable post civil war uh, constitution and settlement in these various countries, uh, including including Bosnia, which is what I concentrated on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how I got into this whole field. And meanwhile, Northern Ireland was uh, heating up and actually coming to a more successful kind of conclusion. So I spent some time on various research projects there. And then, of course, Israel-Palestine in the year 2000 was in a very hopeful stage with Camp David being negotiated, future for Palestine, which fell apart. But I was involved with a group in um, Israel and Palestine. We tried to figure out what Jerusalem, one city, two capitals, would look like, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a possible capital mm -hmm. for two states that were forming. Of course, that project fell apart because of the uh, intifada and the subsequent uh, conflict events. But so over the years, I accumulated these projects, this experience, and uh, put it all together into a book, which I wrote later when I retired, called Conflict and Peace Building in Divided Societies. It's a 2007 book. It's got a chapter on Northern Ireland. It's got a chapter on Bosnia and one on Palestine, mm -hmm. Israel, and several other things in it. So this is, this is how I got into this field. Uh, meanwhile, I retired in the uh, uh, middle of the 2000s, 2005. I also was a, an expert witness at an international war crimes tribunal involving one of the Serb uh, war criminals. And uh, the court wanted me to summarize social science information on what hate propaganda and uh, extreme xenophobic nationalism does to influence the population, the fighters, the politicians, and it complicates post-war settlements. So uh, I wrote a, uh, uh, based on, on research and content analysis of a lot of this propaganda, I wrote a brief uh, and I was an expert witness for two days. Uh, so uh, I also then became concerned about the Gaza wars that kept recurring. And I did, did research on that and uh, tried to figure out what would end this cycle of, uh, right, okay. of war and mm -hmm. destruction and rebuilding and war and destruction without any change at all in the status of what the population was experiencing. And I wrote a couple of papers on that. So I've maintained this interest for now uh, since uh, the middle 1970s uh, episodically. I'm not a professional expert on any of these 
uh, countries. I'm not a, a Middle Eastern expert and so on. But I have this, this concern and this interest as a scholar and a human being. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I'd like to touch on the issue of hate in conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. That is, if you take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you take the Northern Ireland conflict, you know, in the Bosnia, there is this inherent hate that's been perpetuated over the years, over the decades. And hate seemed to me, from, and I'm looking at it from a, from a conflict resolution perspective, was a sort of the kind of a glue, social glue, that maintained the, the that maintain actually perpetuated to a great extent the conflict itself, even though the parties involved knew or know all along that they really could not change dramatically the status quo. Let me, let me, let's take the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, mm -hmm. as one of them. That is, when you say, well, all of these conflicts in Gaza, the, the, the situation really did not change on the ground, other than ongoing fighting, you know, and went on and on, and we probably will continue because neither side actually is in a position to change the reality on the ground. Uh, if you take the, the Balkans today, there is still conflict. However, it's not violent conflict, but the but the feeling, the concern, the hatred, mm -hmm. uh, historic, continue to feed into what's happening today politically in the Balkans. So, from your perspective, from your perspective. How do you, how do you, now if you cannot solve the issue territorially or politically, how do you begin to mitigate hate itself because as a means by which perhaps you can reach an agreement? Israeli Palestinian conflict is a very typical one in that regard, but there are other examples. From your perspective, because in my view, if you disagree, please tell me, uh, in my view, that is mitigating hate. Mm -hmm. Mitigating it is an important component in conflict resolution in terms of sustainability. That is, you can resolve a conflict, but if you cannot change the intense feeling of hatred, intense feeling of suspicion and concern, even though you may settle on a solution, but it may not be sustainable unless you also address these feelings, emotionally, psychologically, and otherwise. Okay, well, I have a different, somewhat different view about this. Uh, let me give you two examples. When I was in the African Studies Association meetings in the 1960s and 70s, there was always a panel about South Africa and how the end game will be this violent uprising and uh, the, the British and the U.S. Navy would have to pick up the whites on the beaches of, of Cape Town and all of that. And this was sort of a doomsday scenario that nobody questioned. And of course, it turned out that the outcome uh, became, uh, became very different. Um, at, at some point in the 18, 1980s, there was leadership on both sides that realized that to have a reasonable and a prosperous future for South Africa, you needed majority rule, but you needed also the 
business and international economic input and connections that the white populations had. And uh, so eventually they figured out that uh, something should replace this long history of animosity and hatred, if you wish, on the part of, of some people because they had a better future to work towards and they got busy doing that. Um, another example is uh, Germany and, yeah, and be, France. Before we go to that, I'm going to go back to South Africa for a yeah. moment. So what happened there, that is, the, the fact is, was this, that when Mandela came to, you know, to power and the, the clerk at the time said, you know, the, the continuation of black and white is not going to, yes. cannot be perpetuated, cannot exist because it won't, won't work. But there, the dramatic change was, that is, that actually mitigated animosity, hit to a great extent, yes. it, the dramatic change in the political situation. That is, yes. the white accepted the fact that the majority, black majority, will have to reign, will have, will have to be able to govern their country. But if you go to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, even though they're talking about today, two-state solution, all of that, there's still the remnants Hamas, other jihadist group, who still will not agree to a solution whereby Israel could exist side by side. That is, in South Africa, which was interesting, Mandela promoted peace and reconciliation yes. as a principle. Why couldn't we, for example, duplicate these efforts, say, in the, in the Balkans or, say, in, in Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And I think the dramatic change there, that is, the white accepted the fact that the black are a majority and they have the right to rule. But do you, don't you think that this was a, a, a great, you know, a historic, of course, point of departure to make it possible for the yes, South African... Yes, that's what I'm saying, actually. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And, and a, a very important external event had to happen is the end of communism. The, the whites in South Africa were afraid that, you know, there would be Soviet or Chinese communist influence once the Africans took power. But once, this, once communism sort of disintegrated, that became a, uh, a fear that no longer was realistic. So they were much more willing to, to, to settle because this external option was, was, was kind of removed. And this is what I proposed this afternoon in my paper also, is that we have to get the external actors, uh, international community, United States, take a very different view of the Palestine-Israel conflict. Uh, they've been basically paying for this conflict to, to take place and to continue, to continue yeah. and so on. And if they stop doing that, subsidizing and then being enablers, then they might have the new leadership in both countries look at the future in a different way, the way the South Africans did and said, well, what can we do to actually build a, a better future for, for, for both of us? And that's actually that's the topic of my talk this afternoon yeah. at, the, at the meeting. Of course, the dramatic, the different, uh, the, the real change in South Africa yes. versus the Israeli-Palestinian or other conflict, like we indicated before, is that the settlement with the you know, international community, the involvement there, was quite clear. 
the sanctions were imposed on the on the government. Yes, right. They they this was actually a crippling sanction up to a point they could not take it. So that was a a, a cause. That is a reason. One of the reasons that the clerk came to the altar, not just out of sympathy and love for the black community, yes. but also because he realized at the time that the continuation of the status quo is not sustainable. He just cannot sustain it. So here, the international community, as you are absolutely right, played a very constructive role by imposing the sanctions, maintaining the sanctions, putting that kind of pressure. And then the internal dynamics evolve and develop with Mandela coming to the fore with That's a right. vision. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what, the, what I see like in, the, in other places, including the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, we did not have a, the, the relationship between the two sides is not one that one party will accept the other in terms of, uh, because neither is willing to be governed by the other. That was, that's the fundamental difference between mm -hmm. in, in Israel versus, versus South Africa. As is to this day, the Israelis do not want to be governed by the Palestinians, nor the Palestinians want to be obviously governed by the Israelis. So there's a duality of claim. So the, the claim is dual. And the, the international community are absolutely right, became the enabler. Yes. United States enabled the United, Israel. Other countries enabled the Palestinians, including Europe. And this status quo is not changing. As we still speak here about it today, it is not changing. That is, the international community has been enabled, in fact, to put the kind of pressure mm -hmm. Uh, on both sides equally in order to enforce them, in, in quote, to face the reality that it is, in their case, coexistence is not one of many options, is the only option because they have no, no place else to go. So how, and then of course there's this, what I always you know, refer to in conflict resolution, the psychological dimension of the conflict mm -hmm. that has not been mitigated over these years. So how do you take a conflict like this, intractable, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, from in terms of psychological dimension to it, that, that it needs to be, to be dealt with, mitigated, before actually you can sit down and settle on the conflicting issues and how you're going to resolve these issues. Well, the international community has been enablers. It doesn't mean they can't change. I mean, right now there's been discussions about how other refugee, you know, other large refugee flows also need international aid, and the Palestinians have been getting it for what sixty years, yes. uh, more, much seven. more than than, and and there's been a reluctance on the part not only of the United States but of the Arab states to finance the refugee status and the the, the money flowing to the Palestinians. So, so that can be that can be changed, um, you know, because of international circumstances. International circumstances change, and whether or not enough pressure can be put on the Israelis to assume the responsibilities of a military occupying power. Uh, which so far they've outsourced to the international community, uh, 
I, I don't know whether that politically can be done, but it could probably be done. And that's what I'm looking at. What if that is done? And then you reorient the thinking of both, uh, probably a new leadership would have to come into no power um, to see, well, what does the future look like with two states? And the future looks which looks good for the Israelis with two states if they have security, and it looks good for the Palestinians if they have a viable instead of a failed economy and state. So any kind of a peace process should focus on that joint but linked future. And the, the, in, in my view, the security for Israel would only come if the new Palestinian state that is going to be forming will be a neutral, demilitarized state, would be like a Switzerland, let's say, uh, but without offensive weapons. And the viable part of that state is some kind of a common economic market between the Palestine and Israeli economies, which in fact is already uh, taking place to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, you have about uh, 200,000 Palestinians, as I'm speaking, who are working in Israel or daily commuting to Israel. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of one economic zone yeah. and package. Right. So, the, so both futures would be dependent on security and a viable Palestinian state. And I think it's doable. It's, it's not unrealistic. Uh, and what I'm thinking of is France and Germany, uh, after two bloody world wars, who realized that they need to have some kind of a common economic market and foreign policy to get over the war's damages and also resist the you know, Soviet influence. And they got help from the Marshall Plan to do this, and so would uh, the Palestinian state and Israel gets continued help uh, to to do that, and that's that's my vision. Yeah, except except I think there is a fundamental difference uh, if you compare yes. say, France versus Germany versus Israel versus Palestinian. Yes, I would address this point in a moment, but I want to go back to the refugees. Yes, in in my view, the the Arabs states have used the refugees as a tool yes. by which to perpetuate the conflict. True. That I is, agree with uh, you. To, to this day, that is, uh, I think it's a quite unique phenomenon as far as the Palestinians who have three or four generations that actually pass on the refugee status to four generations. That's so right. So you, you started with six, seven hundred thousand Palestinian refugees. You end up talking today about five million refugees. And, it, and, the, and the international community, the United Nations, is continuing to support that, not, not raising the question, do, for example, the second generation, third generation, do they, should they be considered as refugees? Yes. That's one point. But for the Arab state and the Palestinians themselves, that is that the right of return for them became sikwanan mm -hmm. to a solution. And, uh, but of course, it is totally un untenable, it's not going to happen because that will wipe Israel out completely as a Jewish state 
which I'm sure you, you know, that's not going to be acceptable no. under any circumstances. But if you go back to the example you cited in terms of the, between uh, France mm -hmm. and Germany, it's totally different. Different, and the reason being, notwithstanding the Second World and the conquest of of Nazi Germany, but in the end, as the German lost the war, they retreated back to a Germany, and the French back to France and the various countries back. To, that is. There was from the very beginning a base. There's a German. Mm -hmm. There is a Germany to which they could go back to and rule. The French back to their f French route and rule. Whereas the same status does not exist. Same situation among the Israelis and Palestinians because there is a duality of claim, territorially speaking. So I I don't you know I, to me I I cannot take the example of France and Germany. As a, as a way by which to compare and say, well, if the French and the German were able to reconcile, why shouldn't the Israelis and the Palestinians reconcile? There, after the, the end of the war, there was no mutuality, mutual claim to any specific territory. There were some differences here and there. But in principle, they have settled on what it's been Germany and what it's been France all along. So, so... This is the problem that I see among the Israel and the Palestinians, that is, to, at one point they need to accept the fact that this is mine, this is yours, we'll have to settle for it. That point is not there yet. And the question, what could bring this about? And so far, current Israeli government, the you said it very correctly, this current leadership is not going to be able to forge any kind of solution. But it is not only limited, in my view, to, to, to leadership. It's going to take more than that. There's international community there is a, that is involved, and its involvement to, so far has not been constructive, in my view, as far as that conflict is concerned. Well, I see, I see a buyout of the uh, right of return for, in return for financial compensation, as would be part of the overall settlement that I see, and it would be something that is subscribed to by not just the two parties, but by the the major powers and the internationals. But the way I the way I see that is that you do have the outlines of the two states that, in fact, is the defined by the sixty seven armistice lines or the green line if you wish mm -hmm. and then if you make israel responsible for the military occupation of the territories they under the geneva conventions they don't have the right to settle people of their own group into this uh, occupied territory now you can't I, I, I totally agree that you can't get rid of them uh, and Israeli will not get rid of them, but what they can do is pay rent. They can pay rent for the settlements. In other words, they're occupying the territory of another would-be state and uh, they want to remain there. They can't be evicted, so, but at least they should pay rent you know, for, for being there. 
There should be rent for the settlements, for the military roads, for the bases, for the wall, whatever is, you know. Now, part of that rent would be earmarked for a buyout of the right to return. In other words, the, the opinion polls for years have shown that, I don't know, 80% plus of the, of the Palestinians um, say that they're, they're willing to take a, a compensation, money, financial compensation for the right of return. So uh, essentially from this rent that would be paid uh, to, uh, to the Palestinian authorities by Israel, you would create a fund again under international supervision so it doesn't disappear into uh, private pockets. Uh, you would you would slowly liquidate this whole problem of the right to return. And if the right to return has been compensated for, then this particular Palestinian family will not want to go back to some parking lot in Tel Aviv or whatever it is. Uh, so I, I think it can be done. Um, I think there would have to be different ways of thinking <laughs> yeah. than is now done. But um, uh, I think eventually the future, the better future for both would be convincing to especially the younger generation that really doesn't want to, I mean, both the Palestinian young people and the Israeli young people are just leaving this area, this country, because it's such a failed uh, entity, mm -hmm. and uh, but if but if you present a, a viable future that's peaceful and economically viable for the for the Palestinians, then uh, they will, uh, you know, they'll they'll back a new leadership that will make this possible. Now, it won't happen overnight, obviously, but um, and and here's where the German. French example that I use is useful because it took truly two generations of new leaders in Germany and France to build this common Europe, at first a common uh, cooperation between the two countries, and programs in uh, education on both sides, uh, which were coordinated started rewriting this extreme nationalist history about the history, the modern history of France and Germany uh, to the point where um, having lived in France myself as, a, as an adolescent, I know the contempt and hatred with which Germans were held. And then 30 years later, they're welcome as tourists and to spend time on the, you know, and, and they can buy country homes and the French no longer are hostile to them, but are quite willing to repair their homes and sell groceries to them and so on. And uh, it's, it's possible to turn things around, but it no, takes I, a long time. I think, I think, of course, it's possible to turn things around. But again, you know, I see... But you understand what I mean. Of course, yeah, yeah. of course. The difference is also here, there is, you know, in terms of conflict resolution, I'm, yeah. I'm looking at it. Um, 
there's there's um as long for example as either side or both sides as long as they feel they can improve their position yes then continuation of the conflict makes sense yes. that is still the situation among the israelis and the palestinians yes so they did not reach also a point of exhaustion that's another means by which you can that says i'm exhausted is no point continue to fight let's sit down and talk in europe i think after all the centuries of wars and wars and wars begin with the ending in world war 1 and then world war 2 i think the european community got to the point where we reached a point of exhaustion that no how many more war we can wage we are not going to be able to change the status quo in such a dramatic way we're going to have to accept it yes. i think this which eventually led to the european union etc because that was the best thing that they could do still i don't when i take it back to the israeli palestinian conflict a they still think that the prolongation of the conflict they can still benefit from it yes israelis for sure see that netanyahu government see exactly that netanyahu government clearly said stated we the, the we the, the status quo is probably we're going to have to live with but not freezing it what they've been doing is continuously continue to build yes. more settlement take more palestinian lands and so that is this progress is being still take if you call it a progress what happened when you speak about paying rent the problem there is if the palestinians were to accept all these settlers 650,000 of them and growing uh and there are sort of pockets all over but these pockets of settlements have been done such strategically not just anywhere these settlements were planted they were strategic what they've done actually prevent contiguity land land contiguity so for the palestinians it's not merely the presence of jews in a particular little settlement or large settlement but the preventing them also from having contiguous land mass that is israel israel build roads for the jews roads for the palestinians so here the problem is with with, with is not a question of compensation in terms of money or rent but it is more in terms of what's on the ground can we in fact change the reality on the ground which the palestinian don't see how that's going to happen <clears throat> but your point is well taken <clears throat> and the search for a solution between israel and jordan israel was a creeping taking more land before 1967 from jordan and uh, and when they sat down to make peace a uh, real peace in 1995 mm-hmm. there were still territory jordanian territory under israeli control basically this chain of settlements going along the jordan, jordan river, river right uh cre- you know creeped into jordanian big all this uh, you know farming land right so what they what, what they finally decided well they did not want to move this farming land israeli kibbutzim and moshavim that were sitting there so they agreed to rent actually huge parcel of to this mm-hmm. day israel pays jordan 25 million dollars oh, a year interesting i didn't know that yeah. thank you for telling me yeah 25 million dollars a year for renting this strip of land actually oh. about a mile and a half or two wonderful and every morning you see israelis taking their car going to jordan for all intent and purposes uh, to to farm their land yes. but it is jordanian so jordan uh, theoretically received got back every single inch of territory 
but rented to the Israelis certain yeah. parcel of land for $25 million a year. What's the difference between the two? Your point is well taken. The difference between the two is this was a desert land. There was no Jordanian hardly presence in this area. Mm -hmm. It was a desert land. And so it did not interrupt anything as far as Jordan is concerned. Whereas in Palestine, it's not the same. It's not the same situation. So, so, but you know, what you are suggesting, it's not, certainly not within the realm of, it's, 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 this is possibility. It's just fascinating. I've never, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. So. And I'll, I'll, I'll put that into my paper this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so this is very interesting. I have given some thought to what happens to those 130 uh, non-contiguous settlements. Mm -hmm and what would, would happen there, and so on. So I've, I've given you just a quick sketch and outline. Now, I, I know perfectly well that the probability of this happening, certainly at this moment, is very low. But I think in history there have always been some ideas that looked very improbable uh, and unfeasible, and there were good reasons to believe that, and then after 10, 20 years of thinking, discussion, alternatives that didn't work out, they catch on and they become more act actionable. Mm -hmm. And that's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm not crazy enough to think, you know, that oh, no, people no. will fall over backwards and say, oh, no. this is it, you know. No, absolutely not. But here, remember that in this case, of, again, go back, if yeah. we don't talk about Israeli Palestinians, it's 50 years, 50 years of occupation. Yes. And now that we are yes. going to the first. So there's this 50 years of occupation and things becoming more intractable, more difficult. Yes. Rather, that is, they still neither side have gotten used to the fact, well, we are stuck. Where do we go from here? So, for, so if you go back to the Israeli settlement, is there any real possibility, because this is what the Palestinians are demanding, to remove the settlement? Well, that's not going to happen. It simply won't happen. So your point is well thing that is, will they come at one point in time to recognize the fact that there are certain realities on the ground that they cannot change? And then I have to find a solution that is going to satisfy both sides and adjust that solution to the realities on the ground because they cannot change. So the reality on the ground will have to be part and parcel of any future solution. That, in my view, the Palestinians haven't been able as yet mm -hmm. to swallow, to take. For the Israelis, yeah, might mean that they, they can probably live with that. But the Palestinians haven't come, brought themselves to this point where they can say, we can live with it. We can accept that as an ultimate solution. That's where I think they, they, they stuck, mm -hmm. where they're stuck. And go back to the international community, it has not been helpful at all. No. As a, the European been supporting of the, the Palestinian much more so. The United States been enabler of the Israelis all along. And the two, I wish you as well as the United States could have come together and say, well, this is one problem. We've both been supporting two, two different sides. That's right. And perhaps we're going to have to come up with a formula that is going to satisfy both sides. But I don't see that happening. I'm not hopeless. 
uh, in terms of yeah. I still believe solution must be found. I spend uh, two and a half decades looking for yes. solutions. Yes. <laughs> right. I still feel it's got to be found somewhere mm -hmm. along the line. But I don't see it happening anytime soon. As long as this, which you are absolutely right, this government, these regimes that exist there, um, uh, continue. But one thing happened which I think very, very important as of late, and that is the change of heart of the Arab state toward Israel. Mm -hmm. You see, in my view now, the Saudis, the Gulf states, certainly Egypt, Jordan, and many others, Morocco, um, no longer see Israel as the ultimate enemy. They see the Shiite as the ultimate enemy. Mm -hmm. Iran, for them, is far more is the real enemy, not Israel, not the Jews. The Shiites are the real enemy. Yes. And I think that coming, that is, if the Arab state now begin to put some pressure on the Palestinians and say, look, we will not continue to support you unless you modify, take a different kind of approach. That is going to be another component beside a EU, the anti-state, mm -hmm. that must play a significant role. That is, when the Arab state come to the, openly say, to the Palestinians, Enough is enough. You know, Israel is there. Israel is going to continue to exist. As a matter of fact, we need Israel. <laughs> Israel is the front line against Iran, and we need Israel. Yes. The, I mean, that's how I see things eventually evolving. No, you're absolutely right. The, um, um, we have uh, overestimated our powers of diplomacy and persuasion uh, in, the, in the Middle East in general, and the Europeans too. And uh, I think in the end, much more of the uh, initiatives and the pressures will come from, as you said, the Arab states and whoever the, the main stakeholders are in, in, in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, I can... I can I can go along with that view, and already I see now that every time the the UN organizations and the Palestinians are asking the Palestinian Authority are asking for 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 monies, um, the there's less and less money coming from the Arab states, and the pledges are not honored, not being fulfilled, I not being fulfilled, yeah. and so that so I think. That's in the making, but what you've described is already going on to some extent. Yeah, to some extent. You know, there's another element that I think in all conflict resolutions, yeah. you know, look at, uh, say, North Korea, look at uh, what's happening in Syria, even Iraq itself, all of, in, in Yemen. The West, we have been in the West making a terrible mistake by trying to present a sort of an instant solution. Let's have a free, let's have a democracy, let's have an election, let's have a democratic form of government. Mm -hmm. That is, if we take, say, North Korea today, how I see it, you are not going to be able to sit down with the North Korea and have an agreement without going through some sort, establish an objective and develop some kind of transitional period to lead into that objective. That is, sort of building blocks confidence-building measures. You're going to need to move from point A, B, C, and D to get to your ultimate objective of denuclearization, for example, of North, of, of North Korea. 
It's again, it goes to the same thing with the Arab state, that you cannot have a solution today that can be implemented within a month or two or a year for that matter. Mm -hmm. You're going to need a transitional period as long as both sides agree on the ultimate objective. What yes. is the ultimate objective? And not deviate. That is, move. It's like you have a map, you want to go to California. You have a map. Yes, sometimes you have to deviate because there are all the blocks here yes. and there. But you stay focused on your ultimate objective, notwithstanding yes. disruptions and obstacles mm -hmm. that may take place in the process. And I think this is the mistake we are making in the West, be that in Egypt, be that in Libya, be that in Syria, be that mm -hmm. in Iraq, be that, and now even in North Korea. Transitional period is necessary once you agree on the ultimate objective. Do you, do you feel the same? Well, I think that it's not the, 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 the scholars, um, but the scholars can suggest this better future. And that, that's sort of my job, I think. And uh, the leadership in, in both, both groups and uh, the media, the public intellectuals, the young people, and so on, have to be the ones who kind of work that out and agree that that is, in fact, a better future, and then they have to take steps towards it. The Netanyahu and the present Hamas or Palestine authority leadership, I mean, they, they just are incapable of doing this. I, I, I totally agree with you. I agree. It's got to be some, but, but we, you and I and others, we can suggest a, a realizable, better future. Real, yeah, a roadmap. Realizable. A roadmap, yes. maybe, but certainly an end state, and then they said a roadmap, you know, yeah. it's up to your leadership to do that. And, uh, it takes it takes a lot of time. I mean, I I think in South Africa it took twenty thirty years for the two groups to agree to that. You don't like the my French and German uh, partial analogy, partially misleading, partially valid. But there also it took twenty thirty years to come to a full understanding of of of, of all of this. And I think it can be done also in the Palestine area. Um, but, you know, the enablers, whether it's the Arab states, the U.S. and Europe, just have to get together and exactly. say, we're not going to finance yeah, this yeah. crazy yeah, conflict that doesn't have an ending. Mm -hmm. They are perpetuating it. Yes. That is state as an enabler of Israel perpetuating it. So Same I, I'm thing, calling yeah. them enablers. Yeah, they, yeah, they are enablers. Yes. I agree with you. Yes, definitely. Well, that was, thank you so much, you know, I... Uh, <laughs> Not at all, I enjoyed talking to you. It was wonderful <laughs> to have a great discussion on this. Thank you, thank you, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.